A reading from the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The Gospel of the Lord. Father in heaven, when we um, come before you, we uh, come before you uh, and the stakes are high. Uh, if you are who Jesus says you are, then you matter more than we can imagine. And Jesus, if you have done for us what the scripture says that you have done for us, then the cost of our salvation is more than we can imagine. And therefore, the seriousness of our sin and the glory that you have purchased for us are also all beyond our imagining. And we pray that you will now teach us and grant us to see something of the magnitude of your mercy, something of the seriousness of the story that we're in, um, so that we may see something more clearly of your glory and that we might reflect it better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated and uh, go to that to the uh, second reading uh, and on page seven there, Luke chapter 17. We are only going to focus on that uh, first uh, paragraph there, so you can just uh, park at page seven there at the bottom. Um, uh, look at the very first verse there. This is Jesus speaking, and he says this. He says, temptations are sure, temptations to sin are sure to come. 
but woe to the one woe to the one through whom they come it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin i find that very alarming i find that that's in the alarming uh uh category when it comes to jesus's teachings um can you see why uh, part of it is kind of obvious because um, uh, Jesus, I don't know, when he talks about um, getting thrown with a millstone around your neck into the sea, um, that sounds like something that's like in The Godfather or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I have this image of like, you know, I don't know, somebody getting thrown in the East River or something like that. And, and that is not usually what I associate with the teachings of Jesus. Yes? Okay. That's alarming, but that's not the main thing that's alarming. You know what the main thing that's alarming is? Um, take a look at it. Do you see the uh, phrase, temptations to sin? Uh, now, that phrase translates one Greek word. The Greek word is scandalon. It's the word we get the word scandal from. And the Greek word means to trip somebody up, uh, to make you fall. Something that makes you fall is a scandalon. Uh, and it can be uh, literal, like a rock that I trip over and I skin my knee, uh, or it can be metaphorical and moral. Um, something happens and it trips me up and it sends me on a trajectory away from God rather than towards God. That's a scandal on and And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Um, Jesus says this world is, is full of scandal on. Uh, there's lots of things that can trip people up and lead them far from God. And Jesus is saying, don't you dare be one of them. He says, better to be thrown in the East River than to, than to cause, than to sabotage people's relationship with God. And that's frightening to me. And the reason it's frightening is look at verse 1. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Jesus is not primarily talking to the big bad world out there. He's primarily talking to insiders. He's talking to the church. Uh, one of the things, uh, just, just parenthetically, um, if you're here and you're not uh, yet a Christian, you're thinking about being a Christian, you're trying to evaluate, um, this sermon's going to be a little bit of inside baseball because Jesus is primarily speaking to his own community. But I encourage you to listen in because um, you'll get a sense of the kind of spirituality, the kind of Christianity that Jesus is inviting you to. Jesus is talking to the church. One of the things that that means is that the most egregious spiritual sabotage that happens, happens within the church. And I say the most egregious spiritual sabotage happens within the church is not because it happens only within the church, but because the church ought to know better. And I'm aware that for some of us, this immediately hits close to home. Because some of us have been tripped up, not so much by the world, but by the church. And if that's you, um, can you, can you see the ferocity of Jesus's words here? You need to understand that Jesus is ferocious about whatever it is that has tripped you up and sabotaged your relationship with God. And Jesus' ferocity against scandalon 
things that draw us away from God is a clue to Jesus's care for you. It's important that you see that Jesus sees you. If you're one of those little ones who was tripped up, that Jesus sees you and he loves you and he stands between you and whatever it is tripped you up. And one of the things that that means is, I hope you can see that you can trust Jesus, even if you could not always trust the leaders of the church. Now, I know that this is heavy. Everybody take a deep breath. It's not going to be the end of the heavy. Um, the question for us, or that's at least up for me, is how can we be a healthy church? How can we be a church that's not a scandal on, that doesn't trip people up? Uh, and here's what I want to argue. I want to argue this, Emmanuel, a healthy church is a humble church. And more specifically, we need a vigilant humility. Uh, we need a humility that's vigilant against falsifying God. On the one hand, and on the other hand, we need a vigilant humility that's vigilant about representing Jesus well. And those are the two things I want to flesh out. First of all, we need a vigilant humility against falsifying God. Um, take a look at verse 3. Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. Um, in other words, be vigilant. Uh, don't let yourself be a scandal on, he says. Uh, don't become a temptation that encourages other people to sin. Don't sabotage people's walk with God. Don't trip people up. In other words, be vigilant about your impact on other people. Now, there are a thousand different ways uh, to sabotage somebody else's relationship with God. But all of them have the same foundation. What's the same foundation? Well, the, the, the foundation of every scandal on is a falsification of who God is. Every way of sabotaging other people's walk with God rests on a distortion about who God is or what God has done or what it means to trust God and obey God. And I take this from the very beginning of the Bible. Megan read for us uh, uh, Genesis, a little bit of Genesis chapter 3, which is the story of the Garden of Eden and the snake. Remember that? Remember the story. Um, God makes a garden. There's lots of trees in the garden. They're all fruit-bearing. God says to Adam and Eve, hey, listen, the whole garden is yours. You can eat from any tree you want except one. Don't eat from this one, but all the rest are available. And then the snake comes in and leverages that prohibition, that one prohibition, the snake leverages that prohibition to falsify who God is and his character. So the snake says to Eve with an eye roll, did God seriously say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Which of course is not what God said. God said don't eat from one tree, but all the rest are available. But nevertheless, the snake distorts God's command and then he goes on, and the subtext goes something like this. Listen, it's as if the snake says, Eve, listen, you can't trust God as your father. In actual fact, he's your tyrant. He's trying to keep you down. And disobeying God is actually your path to liberty because you're better off on your own and without him. Now, there's a lot there, but I want you to see how it is that the snake tempts. He falsifies God's character. You can't trust God. God's a tyrant. You're better off without him. And as soon as Eve and then Adam uh, believe this falsified view of God, uh, from her perspective, as soon as she believes that falsified view of God, sin makes sense. 
And that's how spiritual sabotage always works. Now pause here, let's do some applying. If you have experienced spiritual sabotage in your background, then the root, one way or another, is that somehow God's character was sabotaged. And one of the things that that means is that your path to spiritual reconstruction is going to be rediscovering an accurate view of who God is and what God has done for you and what it means to follow him. All right, go back to the reading. Now, in Jesus' day, uh, the most famous uh, spiritual saboteurs were the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees were a group of uh, popular religious leaders, and they typically falsified God's character in one of three ways or all of them. So sometimes they added to what God said. Sometimes they subtracted from what God said, and sometimes they just discredited what God said. Let me go through each one. Sometimes they added to what God said. Um, the Pharisees were kind of famous for adding a layer of regulations on top of what the Bible said, what we call the Hebrew script or the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. They added another layer of regulations on top of that. And those added, uh, they added regulations about all kinds of things. They could add, they added regulations about uh, how to observe the Sabbath that were beyond what the scripture said. Uh, they added regulations about um, the kind of people you could eat with and the kind of people you should not eat with. Uh, they added regulations about um, uh, ceremonial washing and any number of other things. And one of the things that's important to know is that they argued that these additional regulations bore the force of divine command. And part of the problem is that in doing that, in adding to what God said and arguing that they bore the force of divine command, they ended up distorting God and depicting God as if God was just that kind of cosmic auditor, auditing our behavior and enforcing the preferred uh, behaviors of Pharisaic subculture. And a lot of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is that Jesus just did not always comply. Uh, he kept the Sabbath, that was biblical, but he did not keep all of their regulations and that drove them crazy. And he regularly ate with people, sinners, tax collectors, stuff like that, that the Pharisees says you shouldn't be doing. And there were other things. Now, Emmanuel, we need to pay attention to ourselves on this. Because one way, to, uh, one way to add to what God has said in the scriptures, and this is, this is tempting for everybody in every age, is to take our uh, cultural customs and confuse them with God's commands. It's very easy to do this, but the trouble is that we can end up inadvertently distorting God and making him into a giant patron for whatever our preferred subculture is. And when we do that, very often you'll know because uh, we become more rigid, we become moralistic, we become deeply judgmental towards anybody who doesn't go along with the cultural litmus test we've made indicators of, uh, of really being for real belonging to God. 
and you can see this play out, you know, sometimes we, we say, you know, we make the litmus test, uh, uh, you, you've got to worship in this particular way, and if you don't, then... Or the litmus test becomes uh, maybe your preferred political subculture. Or the litmus test becomes uh, whatever uh, extra biblical customs or cultural uh, uh, patterns that you feel really strongly about. It's easy to, to uh, act like those bear the weight of divine commands. And the thing is, the reason that this is so compelling for a lot of us is that a lot of those practices, those uh, cultural uh, um, uh, uh, um, frameworks, a lot of them have a lot, that, a lot to commend them. But the danger is that when we enforce them as if they held divine authority, we can end up distorting God. And the humble church must be very vigilant about that danger. Sometimes the Pharisees added to the scriptures, but sometimes they subtracted from what God said. Uh, we talked about this last week. Uh, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees modified marriage so that marriage was very easy for men to exit. They made divorce easy, at least for men, not for women. And we saw last week, Jesus comes at them and says, no, 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 no. You are editing God's teaching about marriage and about the purpose of sexuality, and you're encouraging sin. And Jesus says, that's a disaster. It's important to remember uh, that the biblical moral vision is binding upon every Christian in every age and in every culture. And none of us are uh, authorized to edit that moral vision out. And we need to be mindful of this because, um, just think with me, if I grew up, imagine I grew up in a, uh, in a religious community that tended to add a layer of regulations above scripture and tended to be very rigid, moralistic, judgmental. If that's where I grew up and if that was a scandal on for me, uh, if that tripped me up and sent me on a trajectory away from God, then I might be tempted to swing the pendulum. You can see how this works, can't you? You can swing the pendulum to the other side and then begin downplaying the importance of obedience. It doesn't really matter too much to obey, at least on these particular commands. And we need to be careful about that because there's no improvement there. Why? Because I'm still distorting God. In fact, I'm still imagining that God is just a patron for the new cultural norms I've come to prefer. It's the same error, it's just in a new disguise. I've changed my subculture, but I have still a distorted view of God. And it might be worse, especially if I begin to encourage other people to share my distorted view of God. I will become a scandal on to others. So we need to remember, while we must not add to Scripture, we must also not subtract from Scripture. Uh, Jesus says this, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So a humble church must be vigilant against falsifying God. We can falsify God by adding to Scripture. We can falsify God by subtracting from Scripture, but we can falsify God by discrediting him with our hypocrisy. The Pharisees were famous hypocrites. 
And few things are more destructive in the spiritual life than discovering hypocrisy in someone whom you previously respected. Hey, Emmanuel, can we be vigilant about that? And I want to remind us of something. I've said this before. There's no such thing as private sin, Emmanuel. There's secret sin. It doesn't usually say secret for very long. But there's not private sin. And what I mean by that is that one way or another, my unrepentant sin will sabotage the life of somebody else. And the horrible danger is that my unrepentant sin, my hypocrisy, could make people around me think, well, it, if that guy's a fraud, maybe as God is too. And oh, Emmanuel, as Jesus says, it would be better be it to be thrown in the sea than to have that happen. A healthy church is a humble church. And we need a humility that is vigilant against falsifying God. And I hope you can see that all of us are vulnerable to that. But then secondly, we need a humility that is vigilant about representing Jesus accurately. Look at verse 3. Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, one of my questions is, why does Jesus move from uh, don't sabotage people's spiritual lives to uh, actively pursue reconciliation with people who have harmed you? Um, does that seem like an abrupt change of subject? Uh, at first I thought it was, but I don't think it is. Think with me here. Spiritual sabotage is when we falsify God and it undermines people's walk with God. The opposite of spiritual sabotage, then, is when we clarify God and that helps people grow. And nothing clarifies God and helps people grow more than the healthy practice of reconciliation. And if you're a Christian, I think somehow deep down you know this is true. Just think with me for a minute. And if you're not a Christian, listen in, because this is how you become a Christian. Those of you who are Christians, how did God make himself clear to you? Just think about your own story. If you're a Christian, one way or another, God came clear to you when Jesus showed you, his, showed you his, uh, your sin, not his, yours. But he didn't just show you your sin. That would have left you in shame and guilt. When Jesus showed you your sin and confronted you with your sin, at the same time, he showed you his cross. He showed you his mercy. He showed you how he died to purchase your reconciliation. And as you looked at the cross, when you looked at the cross, you saw the opposite of a scandalon. A scandalon is something that trips us up and leads us from God. The cross is something that picks us up and reconciles us to him. And as you discovered the cross and as you trusted in Jesus' grace, you found yourself forgiven. You found yourself embraced. You found yourself adopted into the family of the God whom you had previously run away from. And the point is this, Emmanuel, that God clarifies himself through the reconciling mercy of Jesus displayed on the cross. The Lord will be most clear to your soul when your faith is most set on Christ's grace. Now, if that's how God clarified himself to you, 
that is also how God wants to clarify himself through you. And I think that explains verse 3, because verse 3 is all about doing to others as Christ has done to you. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Christian, can you see that's what Jesus does for you every day? And that's how you hold up God to others. So that if we want to be the opposite of a scandal on, if we want to be op the opposite of a church that falsifies God and, and sabotage people's spiritual lives, then we need to relate to others as Jesus has related to us. And Emmanuel, this sounds great in theory, but it'll bite in practice. And it'll bite when we get hurt. And maybe it bites right now with the pain we bear from the times the church has hurt us. But the question is this, Emmanuel, when we are hurt and sinned against, will we discredit Jesus by responding in hate? Or will we re represent Jesus well by confronting sin and holding out reconciliation? Or on the other hand, will we falsify Jesus by minimizing sin or tolerating sin or overlooking sin when it actually really needs to be dealt with? Or put differently, will we uh, falsify Jesus by falling into the, the trap of accusing someone of sin when they actually have not sinned, they're just not living according to our subculture preference? We must not add to God's word when, and call something sin when it isn't sin. We must not subtract from God's word by overlooking sin that we shouldn't. We can't discredit God's word by harboring bitterness that is incongruent with the grace we've received. Does that sound hard? It takes a lot of wisdom. And it takes a lot of humility. But it's crucially important. And it's crucially important that we do it by looking at Jesus. By looking at Jesus and becoming students of his truth and his mercy for us. Because the more you look at Jesus and his grace for you, the deeper it goes, the more you'll be able to love those whom you might otherwise have good reason to hate. And the more you look at Jesus and his cross and then from that vantage point listen to his teaching, the more you'll be able to discern the difference between sin and what's actually not sin. And the more you look at Jesus and study his truth, the more you'll be able to tell the difference between real repentance and, and what actually is not real repentance and, that, and where you need to ch uh, challenge yet more. And the more you look at Jesus and internalize his daily patience and grace for you, the more you'll be able to persevere in forgiving others when they hurt you more than once. And I know that sounds hard, doesn't it? And it's harder than we think it is. But remember, everything becomes clearer the nearer we are to Christ. And Emmanuel, the more we become humbled at the foot of the cross, the more you can expect God to do a beautiful thing in our church. It's true that the church has sometimes been guilty of sabotaging people's spiritual life in egregious ways. And if that's been your experience, then look at Jesus because he's your advocate. 
But Emmanuel, when the church is humbled at the foot of the cross, when we're vigilant against falsifying God, either by adding or subtracting from his word, as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, Jesus transforms the church into a beautiful thing. The ch Jesus wants to transform our church to be an embassy of reconciliation. He wants to make our church to be a center of spiritual repair. He wants to make our church to be a haven of reconstruction, reconstructing people's broken spiritual lives. And as people rediscover not the falsified view of God that they've had in their past, but the beautiful Lord in his, all of his holiness and mercy and grace that Jesus died and rose again to display, as people discover that God, then they will see the beauty for which their soul was made. And we get to share in that glory. So fix your eyes upon the cross of Christ. And let the cross lift you up and be the opposite of a scandalon for you. And then hold out the cross for everyone to see. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.